Scripture reading this this evening will be from Acts twenty two sixteen. That's Acts twenty two sixteen. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Good evening. It's good to be together once again this Lord's Day. We are going to be continuing our series of question and answer nights that we've uh, we began. I believe it was about this time last year, and we do it, try to do it once a quarter. And so I appreciate very much everyone who submitted questions. I think I, last time I had I was getting pretty close to being almost out the cupboard was getting kind of bare and which i'd been playing ketchup so i I was kind of glad for that now i am again kind of completely bare the cupboard is bare so after tonight hopefully you get some questions that you start thinking about put some follow-up questions in the box uh in the foyer and we'll try to address those in in the future i know i have i left a couple uh just for next time so i have a little bit but uh, that we can go to but go ahead and be thinking of some questions to be asking uh but appreciate everyone's good attention in uh thinking about these questions and i'm i'm impressed by the questions that we continue to get they are very biblical based and they are very uh, thought-provoking and challenging at times. And so the first one that we're going to be looking at is, again, kind of a challenging one, I think. And it's one that is uh, very e- even emotional, maybe, uh, for many people. And we're going to begin with a little bit of morbidity, I guess, because the question is about cremation. And what does the Bible say about cremation, and is it okay? And this is a thought-provoking question. It's a very practical question. It's something that many people wonder about. They have questions about whether it's acceptable and if it's biblical or not. And I think if you go through the Old Testament, you'll see that burial was the custom of the Israelites and many, many other people during the Old Testament, even into New Testament times. In the book of Genesis, in Genesis 23, with after Sarah, Abraham's wife, died. She was buried in Genesis chapter 23 and in verse 19. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of uh, Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And you can look up several other passages where we find that People were buried, usually in a rock or in a cave or something like that, and there was a rock that covered the cave, or some some place like that. That there was a burial custom of God's people from very early on. And Jesus, obviously, in Matthew chapter twenty-seven, he was buried, and we see that uh, throughout the Old Testament times. Yet cremation was not unheard of in the book of 1 Samuel. In, uh, at the end of 1 Samuel, whenever King Saul uh, is, has died, in 1 Samuel chapter 31, 
And in verse 11, it says, Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. And so you see that they... they uh, Saul and his sons were uh, burned, and their body was burned, and then their bones were even buried at that point. And so what might have been an ancient practice of cremation, and maybe there was some humiliation there in, involved with the death of Saul, that Israel's king had been killed by the Philistines and in war, that here he is cremated, uh, maybe there was trying to preserve a little bit of dignity or honor, but cremation was not unheard of. But what you also see is there was the practice in the Old Testament of burning your uh, burning people in First Kings chapter sixteen. In First Kings chapter sixteen and verse eighteen. Uh, when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. And when you have instances of people dying by fire in those kinds of cases or passing through the fire, that's not equivalent to cremation there. It wasn't done purposely. That was done to uh, kill themselves, for instance, here in this example. And what I think we, we have to just acknowledge is that our bodies will decay. In the embalming process only delays what is the natural process. And so our bodies will eventually return to dust. In Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis, Genesis the third chapter, in the cre after the creation account, and after Adam and Eve had sinned, in Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 19, God says to Adam and Eve, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In the book of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, in the book of Ecclesiastes in the 12th chapter, we have here where Solomon writes at the end of that book, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verses 6 and 7, Remember him before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed and the pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. As I think Solomon is describing here, the aging process of as we grow old, as we as things start wearing out and breaking down, that eventually we will die. Our bodies give up. And the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. And so what I think what we have to see as we look at all the data is that there's not necessarily something wrong with cremation. That there is a custom that we have from the days of old that we can certainly choose to follow. 
and we might choose to be cremated as well. That there is the custom that we might choose, but I think it is exactly that. It's a custom that we might adopt. It's not a, 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 a biblical prescription that we have to bury someone, that we are not required to. It's not what God demands or necessarily expects. Because eventually our bodies are just going to return to dust. And so if we kind of help that process along through cremation, I don't, I don't see how that would be wrong or inappropriate. And in kind of to follow that up, it, the question comes uh, to us, would you discuss the appropriateness of having funerals and weddings in the church building? And I think this is something that is important for us to think about. And it goes probably to what I have not been able to sit in Joe's class on Sunday mornings. Uh, I've been teaching the middle school class this quarter, but I'm sure he has touched on authority and general authority and specific authority and things like that. And as this question is very much related to the use of the church building. I think we are absolutely authorized to have a church building because the church is expected to meet and assemble. Assembling together requires a place to assemble in some form or fashion. It doesn't necessarily have to be a building that we own, but it certainly can be a building that we own. That we are expected to assemble together as we see prohibitions against the forsaking of the assembling of the saints. But what we also see is that as we think about the church and its work and its mission and what we are to be doing, social activities are outside of those parameters. And as a function of the church and its work in an official capacity, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and in verse uh, 22, as the church at Corinth, they had been uh, sorely abusing the, the Lord's Supper, and they had been turning it into a, a social meal of some sort, a meal where they were dividing rather than coming together and being united, where they had the rich going ahead and eating and not waiting on the poor and, and things like that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and in verse 22, Paul sets out a principle here. He says, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or, you, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. And so Paul certainly sets forth this principle that you have houses to eat and drink in. Like if you're wanting to just have a social meal and a social cause or a social gathering, you do that in your family. You do that with your family in your homes, privately, not as a function of the church. When you think about weddings and funerals, and weddings in particular, while weddings can and often do, especially when there are Christians involved, there are some spiritual elements, right? We might make a vow before God. But I think primarily it is a social engagement. It's a social uh, activity that ends up being something that we, uh, where we have 
meals and a party or a reception. There's oftentimes music that is a, that's played and there's gift giving, all those kinds of things that we might think of that are associated with weddings. And first and foremost, typically when you think of a wedding, it's about families. It's about friends. It's not about fellow Christians per se. Well, I hope you have fellow Christians at weddings and things like that. It's primarily about two families coming together. And I think that would just dictate to me that we avoid weddings in the church building. Whenever you think about funerals, on the other hand, funerals do oftentimes incorporate elements that we would find in common with our worship services. There's prayers, there's singing, there's preaching. And death and funerals, I think, seemed to be an occasion that involved fellow Christians first and foremost. For example, in Acts chapter 9, in Acts chapter 9 and in verse 36, in Acts chapter 9 and verse 36, Peter, as he comes to Joppa, it says, Now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died, and when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, Do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And when he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And what just strikes me here is just that sense of community. That when Tabitha or Dorcas, when she passed away, who's there? It's the saints. It's disciples. And whenever we have brethren who pass on and, and die, it's the saints that come together, that assemble, that whenever, whenever someone, one of us passes on to go to be with the Lord, we come together. And oftentimes that's accompanied as we see in our funeral services, there's prayer, there's singing, there's preaching in some form or fashion. And so this is my opinion, this doesn't represent anyone else here other than me, well, I am probably the type that would say I don't think we ought to have weddings in the church building because their primary focus and attention seems to be so much more on social elements rather than spiritual elements. I do not mind funerals in the church building because focus is a lot more on spiritual things. Because we get an opportunity to share the gospel with people. And we get to look at the example and the lives of our brothers and sisters who have passed on. 
And we get to be encouraged by their example. We also get to learn and we get to admonish those who may not be faithful to the Lord. We get to encourage them to be faithful to the Lord. So just as I said, personally, I have less of a problem if the church building is used for funerals. But if we want to probably be safe, we may want to say no weddings and no funerals in the church building. They just want to make it very easy. I think also with weddings, I think what you may see in, in the future is where given the state of our country that and what is considered a marriage in this country by legal terms, that if you in if a gay couple wanted to come in here and ask to be married and we said no, then we might find ourselves in a lawsuit. Uh, we might find ourselves in the news for rejecting that and saying no. Uh, and I think we would have to answer for that for some what would appear to be inconsistency uh, in some way. So I, I think it's just safer if we say no weddings in the, in the church building. And again, as I said, I have less of a problem if you have a funeral in the church building. Feel free to disagree with me at some point and bring that up to me later on. A third question that I received was if Jesus tells us not to be called Father in Matthew chapter 23, how does Paul use the term in the spiritual sense in his letters? Example, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15. Just turning over to Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees for the things that they require. And in Matthew chapter 23 and in verse 8, he says, But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. And in these verses, I think Paul is certainly rebuking the Pharisees. And I really appreciated what Brother Kyle Pope had to say about this verse in particular. He said, the context of Jesus' commands establish the bounds of this prohibition. And so what he's saying here just in that first sentence is that the context is what really determines the prohibition here in helping us understand it. He goes on, Jesus is addressing spiritual relationships to religious leaders. Jesus is not condemning reference to fathers in the flesh. Jesus and inspired writers demonstrate this repeatedly, and he cites several passages in the Gospel of Matthew alone, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 22, verse th- chapter 3 and verse 9 and 421, where Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uses the term fathers about earthly fathers. And what Jesus addresses is honoring human religious leaders as if we are their subordinate offspring, following them in the unquestioned obedience of a child to his father. And so whenever you think of passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15, Paul 
he would use this metaphor, I think, and that's the primary thing, I think, that we have to recognize. Paul's using a metaphor of fatherhood. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15, it says, For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. So he does use this idea of becoming a father because he's led these people to Christ. But I don't think he's demanding this to be used as a title or as that you have to look at me or treat me differently. Paul also, interestingly, sometimes uses the, the metaphor and describes himself as a mother. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, to the Thessalonians, he says in verse 7, But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. <clears throat> Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. He's describing the relationship that they have with each other. Uh, as brothers and sisters or as father and, and child, not in a way that would require subordination, but in, in a way that would bring about tenderness and closeness. Whereas what Jesus is trying to warn about in, in Matthew chapter 23 is where there's a dichotomy, where there is ranking and superiority that is being described. And I think in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what you see is that Paul actually places a limit on his fatherhood that the only way that he has any kind of fatherhood is through Christ. He says that in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 15, For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. So it's not that he is requiring them to recognize him or call them his father but he's using a metaphor that would help them draw closer to him in their appreciation for his teaching and his instruction as a father would instruct a child so paul instructs the corinthians so i think that is kind of how we need to see some of those descriptions there throughout the new testament very good question that we got there. Another question that received regarding Second Peter chapter three, in Second Peter chapter three, and verse twelve, we'll go to the to that passage and read it. In Second Peter chapter three and in verse twelve, where Peter writes. <clears throat> concerning the day of God, the day of the Lord, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. The question is, is Peter using elements as in the periodic table that is the smallest unity uh, of material or elements like outdoors, trees, rocks, and rivers? And the word elements, it means a basic component of something. It's the elements of substances underlying the natural world 
the basic elements from which everything in the world is made and of which it is composed. And so I think with that understanding, that definition, it is essentially referring to the elements of the periodic table, that it's the, the most basic elements in all of this world that binds everything together. But even like with all organic material, it contains those elements. The outdoor elements like rivers and rocks and trees they're going to be destroyed because the elements are destroyed. And so the most basic building blocks of life, what Peter is saying, all of it's going to be burned up and melted. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. That everything is just going to be burned. And it's all going to be taken away and removed. And nothing is going to be left. And so we are looking forward, as he says in verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We look forward to that spiritual home in heaven. And I got several, a couple of other questions I think we'll be able to squeeze in this evening. If Satan is a fallen angel, what did he do to get kicked out of heaven? And the Bible does not tell us directly that Satan is an angel or fallen angel. Uh, I think that's sometimes a little bit of a misnomer. But logically and scripturally, I think there only appears to be deity. You're either God, right? You're divine. Or you're an angel or some form of spiritual creature. Or you're human. If there's any other classification, I don't really know what that would be. Um, you might be able to parse out angels and spiritual creatures in some form, uh, but they seem to be a spiritual being that is in the spiritual realm that's distinct from us, right, and God. So I think we can safely say that Satan is not God. He's not deity, nor is he human. So he must be in that second stage in a spiritual uh, creature or angel, whatever you would like to say there. I think there is some room for some discussion there, but we could, you have to put him in that second category, I think, there in some way or another. And we are not specifically told what Satan might have done. What we are told in 2 Peter chapter 2, for instance, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. So what we learn there is that angels did sin and can sin. That Angels, they apparently have free will. 
They can choose to obey or disobey. They are very much like us in that sense that they can do what's right or they can do what's wrong. And there are some angels that were disobedient. But God treats them differently. I think it's implied that in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, that God created human beings and only human beings in His own image. And because of that, God has chosen to redeem us, even though when we sin, He's chosen to save us and initiate a plan of redemption for us. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, in Hebrews chapter 2 and in verse 14, as the Hebrew writer is discussing Christ and how He came in flesh and blood, it says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And then notice in particular verse 16, For assuredly He does not give help to angels, but He gives help to the descendant of Abraham. That God has redeemed through Jesus Christ human beings. That He has not given that help to angels. That once they chose to sin and disregard God's law, and some were thrown into to, to hell, that their fate was final and sealed. And that's the benefit that you and I have. That after we sin, we have opportunity to repent. That we can find grace, we can find forgiveness. Whereas God does not allow that for angels. The second question that came along with that, what was hell before Satan was fallen? Was it a thing? And it does seem that hell existed before the sin of the angels as a place for those who sin. We already noted 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. Though we might also note Jude, in the book of Jude, and verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Also in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20 and in verse 11. The picture of the judgment scene. In in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and Him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. In verse 14 it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That this seems to be a place that 
exist in the spiritual realm that was reserved for those who would sin and whom God had condemned and judged for their iniquity and for their sins. And then, I got one final question we'll try to get answered. I got this question. Where do you get ideas for your sermons? Maybe, maybe they're boring and, and they're not good ideas, but reading the Bible, sometimes just through reading something, I'm like, hey, that, that would, I need to preach on that. that. That's interesting. Or maybe I just need, I, I sit back and think, all right, what do we really need? Maybe there are some people who are really struggling with something right now, and I need to try to address that in some way, and so I want to try to be encouraging. I want to Try to address some, a problem, a particular issue that's going on. And the particular question that we might have and that we're all kind of wondering about, what should we do? Maybe it's that you say, hey, Sean, I want you to preach on this. That's, sometimes I'll get really good ideas that way. Uh, whenever I get a request. Sometimes it's from reading books or reading commentaries. I can pick up on an idea and like, ooh, that sounds really fascinating. I want to preach on that. Maybe it's current events that, that might be going on that we might be wondering about. Uh, how do we really think about this from a biblical perspective? And maybe it's issues that are affecting the congregation, the church. Maybe it's issues that are going on in other places. I know brethren who have been sound and faithful brethren, maybe they're struggling with certain doctrine or something like that. Maybe we try to address some of those kinds of topics and ideas. So that's just how I try to get uh, different ideas for sermons. But if you have any ideas, let me know. I can, I can preach on them. And so I appreciate that question very much. We can ask a lot of questions, and they're good and they're important. But as we conclude tonight, I want us to think about how you might answer a question. In Acts chapter 22 and verse 16 that Eli read to us at the beginning of our study, Saul of Tarsus, he was asked a question. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on His name. Sometimes it comes time for us to ask and to answer a question. Why do you delay? If you have reached an accountable age and you've not rendered obedience to the gospel, why do you delay? Can you answer that question tonight? Why are you putting it off? Why are you not making that choice to follow the Lord? And if you are a child of God, but you have not 
been faithful. Why are you not faithful? Can you answer that question tonight? Why are you not serving and living for God? You need to answer those questions tonight. And those are questions that only you are going to be able to answer. That no one else will be able to answer them for you. So tonight, if you need to render obedience to the gospel, or if you need to make your life right with the Lord, we want you to come now as we stand, as we sing.